All right, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We are quickly coming to the end of the book of 1 Peter. And in the passage we look at this morning, he talks about spiritual leadership. And I want to give you a basic introduction to spiritual leadership. If you do a Google search on spiritual leadership, you will get 6.6 billion hits. I did that this week, and those 6.6 billion hits came in 0.79 seconds. That's a lot. Those are a lot of articles on leadership. And you wonder, why are people so interested in leadership? Why? I mean, I think part of it is that people, people want to be led. They sense that we're living in a time where we, we need good leaders. And so how do you really define leadership? Um, leadership is, at its core, is about transforming vision into reality through people. That's what it means to be a leader. You got a preferable future. You got something that you want to see take place. You know you can't do it yourself. And so you want to take people, gather people around you, coalesce them into a group, and you want to accomplish that vision through people. If you look at who the great leaders are, you see people like this, Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln, Steve Jobs. Uh, it's interesting that there, if you Google great leaders, the same leaders tend to come up on most of the lists, and these guys are included in most of the lists. You also have this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who split history into B.C. and A.D. And so leadership is something that is um, just, people are thinking about it, the, people are thinking about it these days. But if you, if you look at these leaders here, you think, what's the common denominator? I mean, these are, Nelson Mandela, such a different person than a guy like Steve Jobs, such a different uh, kind of leadership than what Jesus did. What, what's the common denominator? Is there a formula? Well, there's no formula for leadership. But what happens in, um, in life is that you, you get these different areas of leadership. Here, here is leadership over, over um, robots. That kind of leadership is very different than leadership over an NFL team. Or leadership over the New York Police Department is different than leadership of a women's volleyball team. So there's just all this diversity to, to leadership. I want to talk about the kind of leadership this morning that we could say is spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is something that God calls all of us to. Everybody in this room at some level is a spiritual leader. Uh, as a mom or dad, you provide spiritual leadership to your kids. As a spouse, you provide spiritual leadership to your partner. As a friend, you provide spiritual leadership informally to other friends. If you are uh, in a small business or corporate setting, by the way that you live your life in that setting, you are providing a measure of spiritual leadership. People are going to see what a Christian is like by observing your life. So what does it mean then to be a spiritual leader? Well, that's what Peter talks about in this, this concept of shepherding in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I, I want to talk about that this morning. 
And I want to give you three aspects of what it means to be a spiritual leader. And the first one is humble authenticity. Spiritual leaders are passionate about demonstrating authenticity. We see that in verse 1. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. We're going to stop there because Peter is doing something very specific in the first part of that verse. Peter is addressing the elders in the churches in northern Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He had planted a bunch of churches there, and now he is addressing the leaders of those churches whom he calls elders. Now, when you, th- when you think elder, don't think about person with a business suit on sitting around a conference room talking about buildings and budgets and forecasts. Because the people to whom Peter is writing are relatively new believers who are helping to lead churches that are recently planted. And so Peter is describing leaders who are leading in a very organic way these new churches that were, that were being planted. The terms that are used for spiritual leadership in the New Testament are elder and overseer. Elder would refer toward that person's relative spiritual maturity, but I will tell you that the people that Peter is writing are very new to Christ. I'm not sure how spiritually mature they were, actually. And the idea of overseer refers to somebody who's willing to accept responsibility to oversee a movement. And these people were overseeing a movement in their respective cities where there were a bunch of house churches. And so Peter is writing to them in a particular way, encouraging them to express leadership. Now, I think Peter's words can apply directly to any of us who are doing any kind of spiritual leadership in the church or in in the community. And Peter is emphatically saying, I am a fellow elder. I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ. What is he doing? He's bringing himself down to their level. He's a very famous guy. I mean, he was Jesus' lead disciple, and he's bringing himself down to their level, being authentically humble in their presence. I want you to think about what Peter could have said. He could have said, okay, you underlings, let's get one thing straight. I was Jesus' lead disciple, and we had like Peter, James, and John. I was always first in that list. I was there at the transfiguration. I was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I was the first to declare him the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm pretty awesome, and you need to listen to me. If you're still not convinced, read the book of Acts. I'm amazing in the book of Acts. I heal all these people. I was going to the Gentiles before Paul was even saved. So you guys need to listen to me. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gets right down on their level and he says, man, I'm an elder just like you guys are. I'm a leader, I'm a spiritual leader just like you are. And I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ just like you guys are as well. Then he continues with his witness in the sufferings. He says he's the witness to the sufferings of Christ. Imagine what people back then would have thought. Peter was there in the courtyard when Jesus was being tried. Remember that he denied Christ three times. Jesus is taken out of the high priest's house 
And in the third denial, their eyes lock. And Peter denies Christ in front of Jesus, and their eyes are looking at each other. So when he says, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ, there's a lot of humility that is contained in that, in that, that idea. And he's still a witness to the sufferings of Christ because Peter was a guy who was flogged, jailed. Then he was released from jail and flogged and, and whipped again. I mean, he's continuing to encounter the sufferings of Jesus. All I'm saying is this. Peter is getting himself down on their level and he is identifying with them as leaders. That is a particular form of leadership called shepherding. Where rather than lording it over somebody else, you identify with the people that you're leading. Now, last week I talked about uh, Jim Mattis's book, uh, former Secretary of Defense, called Call Sign Chaos. I, I had a, some people ask me about that book. Um, you bought it. Some people bought it, read it, loved it. But one of the things I was really impressed with Mattis's book is he said, if you want to lead well at a higher level, you always have to know what people are going through at the lower levels, always. If you don't do that, you can't lead well. Jim Mattis did that as, uh, as a four-star general. Peter's doing that in the first century. But I have to be honest with you, many spiritual leaders don't do that. They start feeling that they're superior to their followers. Maybe they have more education. Maybe they're more successful. Maybe they got a better personality. Maybe they're more accomplished. And so some of these spiritual leaders begin to uh, believe all the great things that people are saying about them, and they become arrogant, prideful, narcissistic, controlling, and really hard to follow. Sadly, a lot of spiritual leaders fall into that category. You can probably think about some names as I'm even saying this. Spiritual leadership, spiritual leaders who went off the deep end because they were arrogant and narcissistic and began to believe that they were amazing and awesome. Peter will have none of it. What he wants to do is get right down on the level of his followers. So let me just take this into our day for a moment. Everyone in this room is a spiritual leader at some level. If you have friends, you will lead them informally at some level. I have friends who, there's no like formal leadership structure. They're just my friends. But they lead me well by the way they live their life, by the way they ask me questions, by the way they speak into my life. That's informal, organic spiritual leadership. And they don't say, I'm, I'm a leader to Rod, or I'm a leader to somebody else. No, they're just, they're just doing it because that's the, that's the impulse of somebody who's growing in Christ. I want to lead as a shepherd because that's what God has called me to do. If you're a spouse, you will naturally lead your spouse. Husbands will naturally lead their wives. Wives will naturally lead their husbands. I have a wife who is a very, very skilled spiritual leader of me. And there will sometimes where Cindy and I will be in a discussion about, about something and she will, she will say it sort of like this, Rod, Rod, and we'll start talking about it. And I, I realize, you know what, that, that might, have not been, might not have been the best direction to take, you know, but not because she said that, because of the, the way that she, she led me in this not so wise thing I was getting ready to do. 
Wives do that to husbands. Husbands do that to wives. There is a natural, organic, spiritual leadership that happens within the body of Christ. If you're a parent, you are certainly a spiritual leader. You're leading these wonderful children that God has given to you. If, you have, if you're a church member, you have informal spiritual leadership, or maybe it's a formal position as a small group leader. You're a leader there. If you work in a small business to lead a corporation, I'm telling you, you are a leader. If you work in a, in a school setting, you're a leader toward your students. Everybody in the body of Christ at some level is a spiritual leader. And we need to seize that idea and run with it. And what lies at the heart of spiritual leadership, what comes first is authenticity and humility. If you do uh, a Google search on the best books on spiritual leadership, this one shows up all the time, Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's now pretty dated, but a lot of people have written about this. And Jim Collins talks about level five leaders. And level five leaders have a unique combination of humility and will. He calls it professional will. Humility, personal humility, and professional will. Now, his uh, paradigm was sort of tested in the leadership literature, especially in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. And many people have, have, have come back and said, nope, you know, what Collins said was, was spot on. The best leaders are those who have professional will coupled with personal humility. It's very similar to the paradigm that Peter is offering in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to the second aspect of spiritual leadership that Peter points out, and it's visionary patience. I will describe and define visionary patience in just a minute. But leaders engage in a form of humble direction called shepherding. Shepherding, Peter uses the word as, as, a, as a verb, and I'm going I'm to say that visionary patience is wrapped up in this. So here's, here's the verse. Shepherd, the verb, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Let's drill down into what this leadership paradigm implies. The first thing that it implies is that people are sheep. You know, sheep are very dependent creatures. They are not fast runners. My, daughter, uh, my daughter's roommate, when she was at Baylor University many years ago, uh, raised sheep. And she taught the sheep to jog with her. And so you could see her jogging in the morning, and the sheep were jogging right beside her. And sometimes it's hard to get the sheep to keep up. You know, they're not particularly fast runners. Sheep aren't big and imposing. They, they, they don't look fierce. You know, I, I was raising my son's uh, German Shepherd uh, Malinois mix, and, and this, this dog, if he, when he wanted to look angry, he could. Like, he could lift up his jowls, and you would see these fierce teeth. But the dog was very nice, but he looked mean when he would do that. He looked like he could scare people. Sheep aren't like that. They don't pull back their jowls, revealing sharp and dangerous fangs. They are timid. They instinctively flock together with the idea that if, you're, if you've got a big group, you're less pervious to some bad wolf or something like that. 
And if they don't have a good leader, they will make very poor decisions. There's a story that comes out of, out of Turkey in 2006 where a man who had a very large flock of sheep was leading them along a ravine, and there was a bridge in the ravine that was, that was not a safe bridge, and the sheep were going along, and they turned onto the bridge, and the lead sheep fell off the bridge into the ravine and died. The second sheep falls into the ravine and died. The third sheep falls into the ravine and dies. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth, 400 sheep fell down into the ravine and died. Somebody lost a lot of money on those sheep that day. But sheep do dumb things. They get themselves into trouble. And that happens in the body of Christ. Sheep make bad decisions. Sometimes they make bad decisions sexually. They develop habits. They do things that they shouldn't do. They hurt people in the process. And Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a guy got involved in a relationship that even the pagans weren't sort of involved in. And it says a lot if you're living in Corinth. People can get in trouble sexually. They can make poor decisions. They can make poor decisions financially, where they get into too much debt, or they get into a cycle of overspending, or they begin having problems managing their cash flow. They get into make stupid decisions financially. This is what happened to the co-worker of the Apostle Paul. His name was Demas. And Demas, it says, fell in love with this present world, and he went to Thessalonica. That was a tax-free city. He wanted to make his, his fortune. He got, in, got into trouble financially. You can get into trouble with pride. There was a guy in the, in the book of 3 John named Diotrephes. And John says, Diotrephes always loves to be first. He's a really controlling guy. And he won't listen to anybody else in authority. So sheep can get into trouble in all sorts of ways. But here's the deal. If you're going to be a shepherd, you have to tolerate some measure of chaos among the sheep. That's part of the, part of the leadership, the responsibility, the job description of a shepherd is you've got to tolerate chaos among the sheep. Over the years, I've had a number of friends who are pastors, and I've heard them say something like this. They said, I am so frustrated with members of my church. I'm so frustrated. They, they are just not growing in Christ. They're making stupid decisions. I'm so frustrated. I can't get them to, to move along the path of Christ-likeness. I'm so frustrated with them. I, I can't control them into Christ-likeness. Do you hear a problem there? Yeah, the, the, the problem is, wait, you know, if you're a shepherd, there's going to be some measure of chaos. People are going to do dumb things. And part of the job description of being a spiritual leader is you have a healthy toleration for chaos. And you're willing to go to go with it and speak grace and truth into that chaos. And so let's think, think about how this works in your family. Your kids are sheep. Young children do strange things. We were in Seattle at my daughter-in-law's house, and my granddaughter had leaned over the railing on the second floor. She'd written her name, Lucy, and her father says, Lucy, did you write your name on the wall? No. 
well, who wrote your name Lucy on the wall? I don't know. Why would you do that? Just because it can be done. Kids are sheep, and they do weird things. Teens are certainly sheep, and they do weird things. Sometimes they do weird things with cars. Sometimes they do weird things with fire. Sometimes they do weird things with texting, and they get into trouble. And you as a parent go, like, what were you thinking? Well, they were sheep. And sometimes sheep do crazy things. Sometimes spouses are sheep. I've talked to a number of couples, and, and one spouse will say, you know, my, my husband was away from Christ for about five years, and it was a really, really hard time. Man, I was on my knees all the time praying that he would come back. Or husband will say that about his spouse. You know, my wife went through a horrible depression for about, about 18 months. And I didn't know if she was going to come out of it. What's going on there? People are sheep. And sometimes they run into some difficult seasons in their life. And it's a wise spiritual leader who can tolerate some level of chaos and speak grace and truth into that place where he or she is leading. So here's a core Job description of a spiritual leader, you got to love sheep. And if you don't love sheep, you got to learn to love, to love sheep. Here's another observation from this paradigm. Not only are people sheep, but collections of believers are a flock. Now, I want you to think about what leadership paradigms are out there today that maybe, maybe he could have used. Okay? Uh, spiritual leaders are not Coaches of athletic teams. That's a particular paradigm. Spiritual leaders are not union bosses. That's another paradigm. Spiritual leaders are not academicians within their, within their home. That's another paradigm. Spiritual leaders are shepherds, and collections of believers are called a flock. And what's the primary thing that a flock needs? A flock needs a leader who loves a flock does not lead a leader who's got a bullwhip. Yeah, that's not the symbol of a leader. Okay, come on, sheep, sheep. bam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whip you into shape. No, what, is the, what does the shepherd have? He has his, his staff and his club, and the club is not for the sheep. It's for the wolves who are coming after the sheep. The staff, the staff lifts up the sheep when they fall, and the club protects the sheep when they're in danger. You see, those are, those are instruments of protection and love. You don't use a bullwhip on a little, little lamb. Now, I know um, people who just do not get this paradigm at all. Uh, I, I knew a guy who was uh, a brilliant business leader in another city. He was rising up his company, and he was respected by everybody. And then he switched careers, and he became a business consultant. He was rising up in that industry, and he was well-known among Fortune 500 companies. He was a brilliant business leader. So he thought he would take his same managerial prowess and power into his home and apply it to his son. And he was going to manage his son into excellence and manage his son into success. And his son was a very sensitive artist who loved music and loved the graphic arts. 
and he just crushed his son because he applied his managerial paradigm within his family. And what you need in a family is the shepherding paradigm because kids are sheep and they need to be loved and they need an environment of grace and truth where they can be brought up into a place of growth. He didn't, he didn't get that and it crushed his son. My dad did something that I continue to deeply appreciate to this day. My dad functioned as a wise shepherd in a particular season of my life. I graduated from Southern Methodist University with a degree in business and I wanted to go to graduate school. I also wanted to marry my wife at the same time. And I didn't have the money to do it. So my dad, who was a very good leader, uh, my dad was president of a company at, at the time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I knew my dad loved proposals. So I wrote a proposal for my dad. And I, on a Sunday afternoon, I presented the proposal to him, and I was super nervous about it. Because the proposal was, I want to go to graduate school, I want to get married, and will you help me out? And so I presented the proposal, and my dad asked me a series of questions. And the more questions he asked, the more I relaxed. The more I relaxed, the more I shared my heart about who Cindy was, about what the graduate program was, and I felt known by my father. That was a wonderful thing. I felt known by my dad. And at the end of the, however long it was, my dad, with a lot of kindness, said, green light, go for it. And for the next five years, my dad was, and my mom, were incredible in the way they, they helped shepherd me, their adult son, into a place where I would, I would launch. He was being a good shepherd, and I deeply appreciated that. Here's a, here's a third observation about this paradigm, and that is spiritual leaders need to constantly check and recheck their motivation. If you see that, that picture, that sheep has its tongue out. <laughs> and, you know, when sheep start putting the tongue out at you, you got to check, you gotta check your, your motivation. So here's what he says. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. You see the not buts? You've got three not buts in that that, uh, those, two, those two verses. And he's, he's talking about checking your motives as you're leading. The first area is willingness. Willingness. Now, here's the idea. If you're a mom or a dad, you're, it sort of seems like you're forced to be a parent. If you're the mom or dad of a teenager, you're forced, like, this is my job. I'm their parent. But what Peter is saying is, when you face a leadership struggle as a spiritual leader, you can have a cranky attitude, or you can say, you know what, I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to lean into this, and I'm going to do this joyfully. I'm going to do this willingly. I'm going to do this because I want to do it. So if, if Cindy comes to me and, and she has something that is happening, you know, I could say, don't talk to me about this now. Like, it's the third quarter of the Cowboys game. Why would you do that? She's more of a fan than I am, so she would never do that. <laughs> but but my impulse should be lean in, proactively 
proactively move in, into, that, into that setting. That's the idea. Um, you know, like, like okay, I, I guess I have to. You're my wife. I, 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 got, I got to do this. Not too happy about it right now. He's saying, check your motives and do this in a, in a way that, that, is, that is willing as opposed to, to, to grudging. Um, the, second motive, the second motive here, willingness is, is not giving in to selfishness. Like if you're a spiritual leader, you could say, you know what? I'm in control. I can do what I want to do because I'm the spiritual leader. And that's not a good place to be. There, there was an amazing story that came out of the, um, out of the UK uh, two months ago, Thomas Cook Airlines went bankrupt. Thomas Cook Airlines went bankrupt, and they announced it suddenly while 600,000 of their passengers were somewhere in the world. So when the announcement came, 600,000 passengers around the world had, had no flights, no way to get home. Very hard to rebook those tickets, and some people were stranded for a good number of days. Here's the backstory. The backstory is the exe executives knew they were going bankrupt, and during that time, they allotted for themselves $35 million in bonuses for everybody. Well, that's a quintessential example of, I'm using the perks of my power to benefit me. And sometimes spiritual leaders are tempted to use the perks of their power to benefit them at the expense of those they lead. Peter's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, be selfless in the way that you lead. And then he talks about, about this idea of controllingness, not domineering those who are in your charge, but being examples of the flock. It's so easy to get into a controlling, micromanaging behavioral style. You have to do that with dogs. Because when I, what I learned is I took these courses on how to raise my son's dog is that the dog for the first six months or so of your life, his life, he needs to see that you are like Zeus. Like you are, it, your word goes and he doesn't get to have a say in anything. And I did that. I did exactly what the trainer told me to do. That dog knew I was Zeus. And when the dog got old enough, I could trust him in all sorts of ways because he, he knew I was in charge. But that's dogs, not people. People, if you start acting in a controlling relational style, what do, what do people do? They put up the walls. You can't tell me what to do. How, how dare you try to impose your stuff on to me? Nobody likes a controlling leader, especially in a spiritual environment. So Peter is saying, check your motives. So let's, let's pull this together and let's look at what this means. All this refers to a thing that I love to call visionary patience. And visionary patience works like this. It's the ability to see a good future for my friend, my family, my team. I see a good future. I believe that they are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I believe that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. I believe good things on behalf of my friend. Under the guiding hand of a powerful God, it's going to happen, even though 
My friend or my family member may be going through chaos in the present. Visionary patience is the ability to embrace God's big, abundant future for somebody and accept the chaos in the present. I will tell you, that's a very hard discipline. We all love embracing the vision of the future. But boy, is it hard to also accept the chaos of the present. And that's the job description of a spiritual leader. It's both. It's visionary plus there's the patience. Now, Peter includes one more thing briefly at the end. Spiritual leaders also serve under the chief shepherd anticipating reward. When the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love this idea because in the ancient world, uh, there were judgment seats set up in cities and in, in stadiums. And those judgment seats were places where the judges or the evaluators would sit and they would evaluate things that were happening, happening politically or happening athletically. So if you had run a mile race you would appear before the judge on his judgment seat at the end, and the judge would ask you if you had trained according to the rules. And if you had trained according to the rules and you won the race, you were given the crown. The crown was an olive, a woven olive crown or a laurel crown, depending upon whether it was the Corinthian games or the Isthmian games. Now, that, that crown did not last very long. I mean, after a week, it's a little dry. After a month, it's really dry. After a year, the thing is brittle, and then it's gone. And you didn't even get a chance to take a picture of it with your phone because no phones were back then. You just had the memory of it. And, and what, what he's talking about here is the unfading crown of glory, an eternal reward that comes because you shepherd, you, you were involved in shepherding somebody. Being a, being a spiritual leader, leader. Now, why would you receive a crown of glory at the judgment seat of Christ? Because shepherding's hard work. Because you've got you to embrace the vision for the future and the chaos in the present. And that's not easy. By the way, the judgment seat of Christ, the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is not your sin. It's a time for the risen Jesus to evaluate your life from salvation to heaven. And if you've done well, you receive a reward. And one of the things you can do well is you can lead people spiritually. With that in mind, let's look at some takeaways about learning to lead. Takeaway number one, uh, identify your primary places for spiritual leadership in this particular season of your life. Our lives have seasons to them. Sometimes you recognize the season Sometimes maybe you're not so conscious of the season, but our lives always have seasons to them. Sometimes it's the season of young children, then it's the season of teenagers, then it's the season of empty nest, or it's the season in your business where you're incredibly busy. Now there's a new season in your business. Our lives have seasons. And so it's important to assess where is my primary place for spiritual leadership in this season of my life? Maybe it's being a small group leader here at Grace. Maybe it's with your family for about, my wife got her master's degree in biblical studies um, at Dallas Theological Seminary, used none of that for about 15 years. Then she came on our staff and now she's using 
that degree. But I mean, her, that early season was shepherding our four kids. So what season are you in? And where is God calling you to lead spiritually in that season? And I'm just arguing that everybody in here at some level is a spiritual leader because that's what God calls us to. Make disciples is the Great Commission. Make disciples is about being a spiritual leader somewhere. Second application is this. Serve as a spiritual mentor to somebody. I'm putting up here a picture of the Sunriser at Egbert's because... When my son was about 10 years old, I met every Thursday morning at Egbert's, and I would go through a discipleship book with him. And sometimes, Donnie Moreland, I would see you there, right? We would see, I'd, I'd see you there at Egbert's with my son. Now, Jared's primary reason for being there was not the discipleship, it was the food. <laughs> it was that. But, you know, a while back when my son came, came home, it was probably a year ago, he, he found that old discipleship book, and he read through it. He said, man, Dad, Dad, you discipled me when I was a kid. He said, yeah, yeah, it's really fun. It's really fun. It's a great time. But who are you going to serve as a spiritual mentor to? too? should be somebody in your family, but it could be somebody in the community. But God... God would love to see you seek somebody to mentor. That's, that's a wonderful impulse when you're saying, God, I want somebody to mentor. Will you please provide me with somebody into whose life I can build spiritual depth? The third takeaway. Uh, as you lead, express radical grace. Here's a sheep who got a bucket attached to its head and was running around trying to figure out how to get the bucket off. When you lead spiritually, you will eventually encounter somebody who does a dumb thing or a series of dumb things. That's okay. Sheep are sheep, and that happens. So what you do when that happens is that you learn to express radical grace, and at the same time, you bring in the truth that heals when you are a conduit of radical grace and the truth that heals, that sheep who got himself or herself into trouble learns how to get out of trouble in the power of God and learns how to move in a, into a new direction. And that's a really good thing. And then the final, final takeaway is please maintain a robust view of the supernatural. One of the things I just love about the discipleship process is when I, I know somebody well enough well, to be honest with me and they say, you know, I've, I've done some, done some pretty, pretty rough things. And they tell me about some of those rough things. And then I, I come to see the power of God give them the strength to build new habits, to build a new perspective, to make new choices. I love seeing that because and my role as a spiritual mentor, seeing the power of God change somebody's life, has given me great confidence in the power of God to change anybody's life. But when you're doing spiritual leadership, you've got to maintain a robust view of the supernatural. If you want to be a really great leader, go coach an NFL team. You'll be awesome. You won't be Bill Belichick, but I mean, but most people are not going to coach NFL teams. If you want to be a great leader in God's sight, this is what it, it comes to.
learning how to engage in genuine, authentic, humble spiritual leadership where you learn to love sheep. Tell you what, the thing I would love it, love about our, our church is if more of us said, you know what, that's what I want. I want to be a spiritual leader to somebody. I want to be a disciple maker. I want to lead a small group. I, I want to I lead somebody spiritually, helping them to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That, that's, my, that's my desire for our church is that more of us would sense that impulse and go, that's me, count me in. I, w- I want to see that happen. Let's stand for a closing prayer.